0: Welcome to IOM3 Investigates, the podcast series of the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining. We are one of the UK's major science and engineering institutions and our activities are focused on the promotion and development of all aspects of the material cycle. These include the science, design, engineering and technology of materials, minerals and mining and their practical applications. We facilitate qualifications, professional recognition and development, share knowledge and provide networking services to a global membership and wider community. We hope you enjoy our podcast series.
1: Professor Mark Jolly, Chartered Engineer, Chartered Environmentalist and Fellow of IOM3. Mark Stajob is Director of Manufacturing and Materials at Cranfield University. And today we're going to talk about his roles as Director of Transfire, the Foundation Industries Research and Innovation Hub, Co-Principal Investigator of SENSE, the Circular Economy Network in Transportation Systems, and as Chair of the IOM Pre-Materials Processing and Materials Group. After that rather formal introduction, Mark, Welcome to IOM 3 Investigates. It's really nice to be chatting to you. Thank you. To kick off, could you tell us a bit about your personal and academic background? Yeah, of course. Uh, well, I was I was born in
2: Walthamstow in the east of London, and I went to a local grammar school. It was the same school as my father and brothers and several cousins had gone to. And and at the end of my A-levels, I went off to spend a gap year working as a lab technician uh, to save money and, and travel. And uh, that was in Sheffield. And where I was actually going to go to university. Uh, Luckily, I happened to have a brother who lived in Sheffield, so I stayed with him. Um, And then I started my uh, degree in metallurgy uh, in Sheffield University. So it's a Bachelor of Metallurgy. Um, And then uh, at the end of that, I I started, I went to Cambridge um, to do research on a PhD. Uh, I was funded by, uh, on a case award, By the Tin Research Institute and I worked on the rapid solidification of tin alloys Um, and I decided at the end of doing my PhD, which I took about four years over, uh, I would would then leave academia and go into industry and firstly I worked for a company called AE Developments Limited in Rugby, who was an automotive power train components manufacturer. Then I went abroad to Geneva for a couple of years and worked at the Tell Research Labs and Then I came back from Geneva and worked for a company called Fasico, who I call the sort of manufacturers of the salt and pepper that goes into the spices and the the, the recipes for cast metal in the foundry industries and and at that time also the primary metals industries. Um, And so I stayed with Fasico until about 1995 and uh, then came back into academia, uh, firstly at Birmingham University uh, and then in 2012 Uh, across to Granfield.
1: That's really interesting, a kind of nice mix between industry and uh, academic as well. In terms of your personal history with IOM3, how have you been involved with the Institute? Well, I've been involved ever since I was
2: a student in Sheffield. So I joined because I think the university probably paid for our fees or we had a very, very cheap graduate uh, uh, joining fee. And um, so we were encouraged to be members. Actually, it wasn't the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining, and it was the Institute of uh, Metals, I think, and the Materials Society. There were two of them, and I think I joined both. Um, And actually, it was at one of the meetings held at Sheffield that I first met my PhD supervisor, Professor Sir Robert Honeycomb, FRS. And he, he was president of the Institute of, I guess, it was the Institute of Metals at that time. Um, and he gave a lecture in Sheffield in 1977. Um, but since then, I've, I've been to numerous conferences, seminars and events, both in local societies. I've given lectures. I've been involved in all sorts of stuff um, when I was working in industry. Uh, but in the, in the last 25 years or so, I've been involved also at the sort of committee level and um, being involved with um, a range of different things from sort of solidification and casting, which was sort of the bread and butter of my, my work, my day job. And then I was things like, I was the inaugural member of the Light Metals Board, uh, also the Sustainable Development Group. And I, I was involved in something called the Integrated Manufacturing and Processes Committee, which is now defunct. And, and actually, was, I, I, I was the chair who actually said this had done its job, and, and, we, and we, we stopped the, the committee. But I was involved in the beginning. And of course, latterly I was, I was chair of the material Science and Technology um, Division, I sat on the advisory council uh, and was the advisory council elected trustee for a couple of years after the government's changes at the institute. Uh, And now, of course, I've been uh, appointed as chair of the uh, materials uh, processing and manufacturing committee. So I really look
1: forward to to doing something about that. Yeah, that's funny how you mentioned joining as a student. That's obviously something that we hear. Um, so often and it's, you know, still important to us for yeah. obvious reasons. Um, from your kind of academic and professional background, it, it's clear you have, you know, a solid foundation when considering uh, the ambitions of, of Transfire, which you are involved in. Um, can you tell us a bit about Transfire, just in terms of uh, the vision, mission and, and how governance works? Yeah, OK. Um, well, of
2: course, I'm the PI of Transfire, so that's the principal investigator. And- And um, the vision, which was developed with the the co-investigators and and some of the industry partners, was essentially to build this proactive interdisciplinary research and practice-driven hub. And what we're trying to do is optimise the flows of all resources within between the foundation industries and their supply chains, which also helps to improve their competitiveness we're also attempting to get the industries to work more closely with the communities in which they're located um, because there's there's a lot of opportunities in in the industries to be able to work um, because of the the outputs from the industry let's say which i can talk about later um, if um, because you know you know there's things like waste there's things like waste heat and, and all sorts of stuff which could be used by local communities obviously one of the targets and one of the aims is to support the uk net zero 2050 targets for greenhouse gas emissions. Now, of course, we're never going to be achieve that within the three year programme of the hub, but what we hope to do is get the industries on the journey towards the net zero targets and help them to understand the best direction to move it uh, to be able to achieve that. The other major part of the uh, programme is to further equality, diversity inclu- and inclusion within the foundry, foundation industries. And of course, I think we're all aware that uh, um, this is a challenge with these very, very um, uh, with these older industries, let's say, been around for a very long time. And so, um, TransFire, as as a hub, will bring the foundation industries and their communities together through this interdisciplinary research, um, essentially to support, reserve, resourc,e productivity, competitiveness, competitiveness and and the end of actually really focusing on climate action to some extent. so in terms of the government uh, each of the each each of these separate sectors have their own technical working groups um which then um feed back into our three main uh, challenges we have we have three challenges that written one is called transferring best practice uh, another one is called uh, where there's muck, there's brass which is essentially looking at some sort of industrial um, symbiosis and, and, and waste products and or uh, attempting to get rid of waste and then the last one is looking at working with communities or co- co-development of, of new businesses and and essentially um, the 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 one which is looking at um, best practice is, is looking at performance across the sectors and establishing practical and theoretical minimum energy and materials limits for example and benchmarking the environmental environmental progress. Um, In uh, the other uh, work stream, so work stream two, which is this where there's there's brass, we're looking at the sort of raw materials that could potentially be used in other sectors with little or no further processing. We're we're looking at upcycling of waste potentially, looking at new and novel material processes and, and, uh, and, and materials that enable perhaps cheaper, or uh, lower energy, lower carbon products, um, with developing new materials and alternative byproducts, potentially by innovative process technologies, with less environmental impact. And then, of course, there's the, the, the symbiosis aspect, which is looking at cer- sustainable and circular business models and the governance arrangements that are required to achieve such things. With the, with the work, working with the communities, the sorts of things that we're looking at are potentially things like low grade energy capture, looking at perhaps warm air or warm water that is currently exhausted into the atmosphere or pumped into rivers, Um, looking at and identifying the potential for co-located businesses or potentially district heating or things even like market garden, which might be possible on sites uh, like like the the foundation industries have. And then, of course, we have to investigate all these things with regard to the societal, environmental, technical, business, and governance perspectives, so that we don't um, leave businesses without, a, uh, you know, with all the answers, all the questions answered, so that they can cover off all of those those areas. And I think that's 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 the the the, the sort of work streams. Then we're overseen by what we call the um, uh, industry uh, strategic steering group. Um, which is chaired by John Bolton. And this is, um, th- this is represent- there are representatives from all the sectors industry, representatives from all the sectors, plus the leaders of the work streams. And overlooking the whole program, we have an um, international um, um, independent advisory council which is chaired by Paul Booth. And this involves people from across the world, from different sectors, both from academia and from industry to to help us sort of make sure that we're on the right path, that we're not doing something that's reinventing the wheel and that that is useful and um, is certainly um, groundbreaking and moving in a direction which will be internationally um, um, respected and, uh, and we're not doing stuff that's already been done, as it were. So I think that's the, that's one of the main reasons why we
1: have this international board thanks Mark no that's a re- really good answer and I appreciate that. that's a very ambitious question from me touching lots of points of uh, what what transpire does as as Transpire is a consortium of you know twenty investigators from twelve institutions and with project partners from more than seventy organizations what challenges come with that well um
2: the, the challenges I, I guess is really ensuring everyone's on the same page in terms of uh, getting getting the vision. So one of the things we have to remember is that Transfire, um, the way in which Transfire is funded through UKRI um, is is a slightly higher level than a traditional EPSRC project. It's it's not really looking at novel technologies that are gonna solve this problem. It's looking at uh, all the other aspects that, that will help with um, the the journey to net zero so it's it's about um, looking at things like um, resource efficiency and dematerialization and how do we introduce those sorts of things the business models the governments into the industries and how do we get those people on board and and getting everybody onto the same page in in uh, is actually quite challenging because if you if you're a traditional academic who's been funded through UKRI you're you know sitting in your academic box and you you work on this particular high high powered research now what we're trying to do is saying look you've got to look broader than your own research you've got to see how your research fits into everybody else's um even if you even you think you you want to to go down that little one track that's only for that sector everything's got to be at least um, relevant to two or more sectors. A- any work that we do, is has got to have relevance to two or more sectors. And so it's, it's more challenging for academics and, and researchers to, to be in that space, I would say, because we have to have a, a broader understanding of what, what the end goals are, which is to, as it says very clearly in our vision, it's, it's, it's looking at the resources between and across the foundation industries, and seeing that they're how they work together, we wouldn't have been put together as a project. It wasn't expected that we have to work together. We can't work in six little silos. We have to work across the boundaries of the foundation industries. And that's really that's the challenge, I would say, because they're not really used to doing this. You know, why would the why would a steel industry person talk to the to the manufacturer of tissue paper? It, it's just not obvious. But there are actually some really interesting. Um, uh, cross-sector uh, 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 challenges with which we can we can solve and
1: help people solve better if we work together you've uh, spoken about the challenges um but what are the benefits of being across so many organizations with their well, you know if you talked about associated specialisms and experience
2: yeah well I think if you if you if you then take that stuff that I just said and put it on its head of course Uh, the expertise in one industry can be very beneficial to to another industry who haven't looked at that expertise you know for example dealing with waste water or capturing waste heat or any of these things um, where it's been done in one one particular uh, sector um, can easily be transferred to another sector Um, and I think that's the sort of thing that we we are hoping to be able to achieve Um, and we've got you know, some international um, exemplars that, that we're going to be using where stuff like waste heat has been used and working with the local community to create um, uh, uh, to work on district heating or to go into local greenhouses to, to grow crops. And, and yet um, we haven't we haven't done that particularly well in this country I, would
1: say. I think you've alluded to this a little bit in one of your previous answers uh, with regards to novel technology but are there any top line findings that you're able to share with us in terms of positive journeys towards a net zero within the foundation uh, industries
2: so, yeah i would i would say that the, the ones that are coming through at the moment are the the where we're looking at the synergies between industries so we've we've had a number of workshops. On uh, industrial symbiosis, we're working with a company called um, uh, Gosh International Synergies Limited, and um, they're facilitating some of the, the communications between the industries. And we've had workshops with fifty or sixty industrial partners, and immediately we've sort of—I don't—I I, I know it's a common phrase—we've speed dated some of these industries to enable them to to work together to, in a way in which they hadn't before. So we we identify what the industry wants are, and then we have, and then we um, identify what the industry has are, and then we sort of put them together. And and it's amazing how some of these industries have suddenly found a new supplier of a material that's a waste product from another company. And we've managed to sort of speed date quite a few now, and they're looking very positive. And I think that, you know, already that's something that's coming out of Transfire. I would say those are the most, that that's the, the most positive thing. We have done quite a lot of uh, other analysis within Transfire. So we've done a um, political, environmental, um, sociological, um, technical sort of analysis, a pestle analysis as you looking, looking at across the industries. And that's been re- very revealing in looking at where, for example, innovation comes from within the industries. And, and that has given us some insights into how the industries move forward in
1: the future. Where um, Transfire is looking at the whole picture in terms of um, the combined foundation industries, it's attempting um, to assume the Sense network, which focuses on transport platforms, will be comparatively easier. I imagine this is is not the case, Mark. Um, Mm. As (laughs) co-principal investigator of Sense, could you tell us a bit, a little about um, the EPSRC-funded research network?
2: Yeah, so the the network plus in uh, circular economy is 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 it exactly that? It's I mean, one of the one of the things that, or rather, the, the way we're going forward there is, we recognise that mobility has has become a way of life for most of us, and what we don't want to do is sort of take away that mobility. It's part of, it's embedded and ingrained in our society. We don't want to stop people moving uh, in future, which you know has seriously enhanced our our, our society. We, we don't want to go back to the periods sort of two hundred years ago where Most people didn't travel more than about 10 kilometres from their their home. So we we recognise that this is rather an important part of our society but what we want to try to do is is focus on the environmentally damaging sort of processes that that happen and in the production of of transportation systems and also the the end of working life um, materials. So We're also looking into things like um, resource efficiency with regard to the the transportation system, a bit like Transfire, but a little bit further down the supply chain, let's say. So we're, you know, there's a number of areas that we we could be looking at, or we have been looking at, and we've had research projects on, we funded a number of research projects, looking at things like recovery of energy intensive and technology metals, reuse, and remanufacture of components, uh lower carbon material substitution improve energy and materials efficient but also sort of the impact of digital uh, and the digitization uh, in in this area so there's there's a number of, of different areas that we're we're looking at and and we cover quite a quite a range so we've had a number of uh, workshops we've had some road mapping events and uh, we funded uh, something like about uh, 10 12 uh, small feasibility
1: grants uh, through the project with the sense network focusing on transport platforms where circular economy principles have not been embedded fully, is it possible to identify any common trends of why this might be? I no, think it's a really difficult question. I don't think that we really have identified any
2: common trends. I mean, I think we're publishing a one of the outputs that we've had is a um, a rich picture, which actually puts together and it's going to be published I think on in materials world shortly we've put together a rich picture of, of the journey towards the circular economy within within the industries within the, the the sector so if we think of the sectors that they are there's automotive there's truck and transports there's there's rail there's aeroplanes and there's marine it's it's pretty difficult to see um, that there's any Apart from perhaps electrification, I mean, electrification obviously seems to be ha- happening across all of the sectors. So I think that is a trend. Um, but it's a question of how that electrification is is being done. I think is is um, is not necessarily the same. And yeah, we we all know that 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 the majority of cast iron, which is which goes actually the majority of cast iron in the world goes actually into the automotive sector or the the transport sector. And and I, I have to point out that that's been uh, that's recycled material generally and it's been doing it being done for 70 years so <laughs> you know the, the industry is it's actually got a very that's a very positive example and uh it's it's been done it's been done for a very long time and of course there there are people pushing the same in aluminium um so that that you know we've that there are examples of what they call so people talk about cans to cars you know the UBC you could argue whether the UBC is a very good sorry universal beverage can I should say for those who don't know what the UBC is uh, is, a, is 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 used obviously we, we have Coca-Cola or sorry I shouldn't say Cola soft drinks uh, carbonated drinks and uh, sort of beers uh, are in uh, aluminium cans and quite often they will go back into a recycled process into the, into the um, automotive sector because Unfortunately, it's quite difficult to recycle it back into the can sector because it's, generally speaking, aluminum cans are made of two different alloys. So it's a bit tricky to, to recycle as one material. So, yeah, I would say those are a couple of examples from two different um, metals. As, uh, parts.
1: When going into a shop in the future, I won't ask for a can anymore. I'll ask for a UBC. And for a UBC,
2: of- UBC of Coke, yes. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. There are other soft drinks available. <laughs>
1: In, um, in terms of applying learnings or insights to industry, what challenges have you seen or anticipate in fostering a more circular economy? We all know the transition from practice to implementation can can be a hard one. One of the challenges from from a,
2: applying a circular economy is that not all circular economies are necessarily sustainable. I mean, in, in as much as actually, sometimes people apply a sort of circular. Process and then you find that the carbon footprint is actually increased by what they're doing. So you have to do it as, as well as thinking about the circularity of what you're doing. You also have to think about what the embodied carbon is at all stages and how that's being impacted. Not everybody does this, does the two in parallel. So one has to be very ca- cautious and careful about these things. And if you can't take them independently, um, you have to really. Um, take on each each area and and look at the look at the full picture uh, and that is one of the challenges that we have anyway i mean all of this sustainability the net zero circular economy it's a multifaceted approach to solving our problems and and what we have to try to do is see how they all link together because you can sometimes be doing one thing which has a negative impact on uh, on, on something else uh, there's always a challenge of where we put the put the boundaries and where we what what perspective we have I mean, we know some very good examples where people have looked at light weighting. So, you know, light weighting is the best thing for vehicles and is it the best thing for transport? When we see the light weighting perhaps of moving from cast iron to aluminum in some instances, we know from the research that we've done that that you can actually increase the carbon footprint of the, the vehicle by doing this. Um, and therefore, you you have a although you we might have produced the lighter vehicle overall the embodied carbon of the manufacturing process balanced against the emissions that you save from light weighting uh, a very small amount is is actually doesn't balance out uh, increasing the overall impact on the on the planet and I would say that we have a, a challenge in the same way with electrification using batteries. Um, because as, as we know that the um, most battery vehicles are heavier than the equivalent in, in internal combustion engine cars and they're of, a, of equivalent standard equivalent power equivalent performance and the vehicles are quite considerably heavier they have challenges at the end of life for recycling of batteries or recycling of those materials and of course they increase things like tire wear because of the weight of the vehicle being 50 percent or so higher and So the tire wear is increased, which means the particulate in the atmosphere is going up compared with the internal combustion engine. So, so that's a those are those are things that people think of in their guts. That they're doing the right thing, but actually, if you over if you look at the the whole picture, it's not quite so obvious that that is the right solution.
1: No, that's that's very interesting to hear you talk about light weighting and you know, as you say, the um, trends nowadays for cars are becoming heavier, although their method of power is, is changing. Just kind of looking and talking about your kind of last, last responsibility uh, as a chair of um, the IOM Free Materials Processing and Manufacturing Group. What drove you to, to, to take up this position?
2: I mean, I have got a wide experience across materials. Even my first degree, although it was a metallurgy degree at the end, I did study ceramics, glasses and polymers during the degree for the first two years. I've worked, when I worked in AE, I was certainly working with, with polymers and plastic materials. I, I've spent a lot of time, probably five or six years in my life working in composites, but not composites that, that most people would think of, metal matrix composites. So I was looking at the mixture of, mixtures of ceramics with, with um, metals, but also, yeah, ceramics, with, so alumina, alumina silicates, Silicon carbides, silicon nitrides, whiskers, and fibers to reinforce metals. And I've done quite a bit on, as I say, on composites. If if you work in a a company such as a component manufacturing company, the material the materials are there. It's it's across the patch. So I've worked in multiple different material processes. You know, from powder metallurgy through liquid metal processing to forging, forming, sheet metal uh, manufacture. So I'm not unaware of a lot of the processes that uh, that, that are in, in across the patch in, in the, the, the wide materials field. I've even worked in and, and, and examined a PhD in the simulation of chocolate manufacture and chocolate casting and, and it's amazing how similar some of those things are to some of the materials I've done. So it's, it's really fascinating to, to actually be across the full breadth of the materials and the full processing side of the, of the materials. And, and that's what I want to get from the group. I don't want to focus on just metals processing, it's got to be processing across all the materials that are covered by the whole of the Institute. I think it's really, really important that we don't think this is just a metals group, it's got to be all the materials.
1: From uh, your academic and professional background that you've spoken of, it's it's clear IOM free materials processing manufacturing group is an obvious fit. What aspect of these previous experiences or current roles do you think will inform your time as chair?
2: Well, I think Transfire is going to help tremendously because, of course, it's across the the six foundation industries. So we've got cement, ceramics, chemicals, glass, metals and paper. And I think That will help tremendously in terms of, you know, I'm I'm visiting companies across the patch in those areas. Those that that will help inform me in terms of their challenges going forward, their challenges to hit net zero. Because with all the with the institute itself, all the all the company, all the uh, members of the institute will be either in universities or or industries or their own businesses or government where the challenge is the same which is the sustainability and the, the net zero challenge and so I think you know Transfire it's an ideal it's going to inform me tremendously as will sense because that will be looking at the the transportation side a lot of the manufacturing uh, is in there I think it's really really key to helping me move forward in in this area and of course I've, I've already talked previously about my background as a in my first degree and also the experiences I had when I was in
1: industry across the patch in different materials. Thanks, Mark. You, I think you mentioned this also or touched on it when when speaking about Transfire. But it, it's really encouraging to see uh, equality, diversity, and inclusion are high on the agenda across many organisations. You know, whether they're academic, industrial, or political. Are there any personal motivations to champion this, as chair of the iom Free uh, Materials Processing and Manufacturing Group?
2: Yeah, so that's a really interesting question. Well, I mean, one thing I didn't mention actually it. It was that that the in Transpire, the ED and I part is it goes through from the top to the bottom. So we're trying to make sure that not only do all our governance committees are, are not only are they all representative, i.e., they have a good gender balance and they also have a good vein balance as well, but But it's being driven by uh, Professor Sue Black, who's Professor of Computing and Technology Evangelist at Durham University. Uh, And she's very well known. She's she's known for writing the book Saving Bletchley Park. She's a superb public communicator and she's really raising the awareness of this across the the, the sectors. She's she's written a strategy for the foundation industries, which I think will help help us in this uh, materials processing and manufacturing group in terms of, uh, looking at how we can involve our members in, in encouraging their uh, employees to become more aware of this issue. And I'm sure a lot of them are, but it's it's really interesting to see the strategy that, that Sue has developed with her team. From a personal perspective, the motivations go quite a long way back, I would say. I always remember when I was working in industry, uh, there was a particular time when I was... I've got two examples. One, one was, <laughs> it's quite a difficult example, actually. That's a challenge. I was working in an industry uh, where we, had, we were working with liquid metals. We had a, we had a liquid metal foundry. It was a, 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 an experimental laboratory, essentially a foundry. And we had technicians who were um, working in that area. And it was very interesting that there was one, I had an employee, a female employee, and, and one day, one of some of, or some of the foundry technicians came up to me and, and were talking about her, wanted to tell me that they had some grievances. And one of the grievances were that she wasn't helping, she wasn't actually pulling her weight, as it were. She was getting them to do all the work that she was expected to do herself, and she was expecting them to do it. In actual fact, what ended up happening is that I had a conversation with her, and I said, well, you know, what is it? Well, she said she, she basically she didn't like working, in that environment uh, I, I didn't actually really investigate why she did not but she basically didn't like working in a dirty environment and uh, so so I helped her move HR discussions to a different part of the, the organisation she actually ended up working in the library and well, that's that's an interesting one because maybe I should have taken it further and understood why she didn't like working in the dirty environment maybe it, she, she had no idea when she first took the job on or was employed that was the case, but. It started to make me aware of things like that. When I moved to one of the operating companies at one stage in industry, I advertised for a technician to come and work for me, and um, it was very clear from the from the uh, applications and the interview that there was this female was the best person for the job. So I offered her the job, and then my managing director turned around to me and said, "You can't offer her the job. She'll she'll." She'll get pregnant, leave in nine months' time, and I said, "I don't care." She's the best person for the job, and I fought and fought and fought, and I won. I, I she did end up being employed by me and being a very, very good technician. I'm really pleased that that happens. So that's that's a personal motivation. But I've also been sorely disappointed in other organisations where I have fought for promotion of of a female candidate and being blocked by senior staff, and I find that just not right. And so. I want, to get a, I want to make sure that doesn't happen in the future because I, I just think it's, it's, it's just, it's completely unfair. And um, yeah, I'm passionate about it. I have myself, I've got two daughters and two sons and um, I hope I deal with them in the same way and, or at least what is required by their own personalities rather than looking at their gender.
1: Thanks, Mark. I think we're all very used to seeing uh, various organizations, pledges to EDI and, you know, in some ways that can be dangerous that, that we feel it's not important. So to hear, you know, your personal motivations and examples in the past, you know, really reinforces that, you know, it it is important and and it is something we should always, always be championing. I know I've asked a lot of challenging questions, but this is the last one. Do you have any ideas or plans on how to align the IOM free materials, processing and manufacturing group? activities with the UN sustainable development goals
2: firstly i think the important thing is that we won't be able to align with every single one <laughs> i mean there are 17 and some of them are really not not appropriate for us to align to but you know for example we can help with things like un sustainability goal 4 so we can look at education quality education we can look at gender equality uh, which is uh, UN uh, Development Goal 5, I guess we could have a, a bit of an impact in affordable and clean energy, where we have the energy materials groups and the people working in there. Industry innovation and infrastructure, I'm sure we can help in that area. I'm not quite sure what what, what reduced inequalities means, but I guess it's if it's similar to gender equality, then reduced inequalities across different nations and across different Groups that, that, that possibly we, we could have some sort of impact there. Sustainable citizen communities, certainly we can be involved in there. We have sustainability in, in the construction side, in the areas that we work in, and also responsible consumption and production. I mean, we've just talked about transpire. We've talked about, I might, might have talked about dematerialization, but if I, if I didn't, then I think that's one of our challenges in transpire, which is to help society dematerialize because it's the only way we'll achieve net zero and of course uh, responsible consumption and production uh, UN goal 12 is really aimed at looking at that so how do we move society away from you know just especially western society from consuming more and more and more and and, and that's that's coming back to to the foundation industries that's a challenge because there are industries that have been built around make them cheap and pile them high um, commodities We've got to move away from commodities, and so how do we do that? We've got to somehow change the perception in society of the value of materials, you know, that, that we shouldn't be throwing materials away, that we should be, all our, all materials have a, a huge amount of value and a huge amount of energy associated with them, and a co 2 footprint. And somehow we need to get that message across, and I think that's a challenge, and, and I think our group could really help with that. Because the processing side is one of the areas where we introduce yet more carbon. You've got carbon in the materials themselves, um, the embodied carbon, but then the further processing and manufacturing adds yet more. And, and I guess that, that responsible consumption is something that we could look at. Climate action, I guess, is, is 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 almost tied in with that. I don't think we're going to impact necessarily life below water, apart from maybe emissions out of the, you know, water emissions from processing. Um, and that, that has an impact. And again, life on land, fewer fewer emissions that are dangerous. So that, that would be uh, one area in that you know, group that we could look at. I'm not sure 16 is something we can have a, an impact immediately. Peace, justice, and strong institutions. Partnerships for the goals. Well, I think the Institute itself is a partnership for achieving some of the goals. So I guess that, that is something that we will, to a certain extent, um, be hoping to encourage. I hope that's answered the question. It's a, it's a really tough one, and it's really difficult to to go through each of those and and say where we would um, where we would have an impact. I I don't think we're we're going to impact very much on hunger or possibly poverty, but um, I hope that some and, and maybe the health and well being. I hope that we'll be able to impact on a number of the others.
1: Brilliant. Yeah, I think that's important, isn't it? Some some uh, goals are more more relevant than others. Yeah. So uh, just knowing what we all know now, I'd just like to thank you, Mark, for your precious time speaking to us. With so many hats on, I appreciate finding the time. Must have been a project in itself. So thank you, uh, and thank you also to all of our IOM Free Investigates listeners. Goodbye.
0: information about us visit iom3.org or to keep up to date with our latest news follow us on social media using iom3 on twitter and at the institute of materials minerals and mining on linkedin if you're interested in our upcoming podcasts or want to get involved please subscribe to hear more from us through apple google podcasts or spotify